Uh, good evening, everybody. Welcome to uh, the evening service tonight. Um, we can just open up our uh, let's open prayer to open our Bibles after. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this evening. Lord God, that thou art our God. Thou hast brought each one of us here with a purpose and a plan. The Lord, thou ordains all circumstances and all things that come our way. Father, we pray thy hand upon every young person here today. That Father, you would work in their hearts to receive the message of thy word tonight. That God, there would be something within each one of them that desires more of Christ today. That Lord God, you would give them strength by that spirit to go forth, not only into this next day, but into the next week and month and year to come, Lord God, with zeal for thy word and love for thy people. And Lord God, that this church that they're part of, this denomination, Lord God, you gathered us all into, will be at the forefront of their minds and hearts to pray for it, Lord God, to be an active part of it, to participate with all their hearts in the ministry, Lord, you provided. But Father, even from the least to the greatest amongst us, we all have a work to do. And I pray, Father, that word would be a spurring force in our hearts even tonight to go forward for Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 So let's, uh, let's sing a song together. Uh, let's sing number 581. 581, stand up, stand up for Jesus.
the book of Titus in chapter 2. Book of Titus in chapter 2. Reading with verse 1, the word of God reads, But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. They teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers of home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing incorruptible gravity and sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is in of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. This is the word of God. Uh, at this point, I want to invite uh, Reverend Andrew Simpson to come up to give both the word of testimony and the word tonight. Somehow I forgot I was to give a word of testimony tonight, but we'll, we'll read together from Acts chapter 2. First of all, I'll say a few things and share my testimony briefly with you. Acts chapter 2. For time's sake, we're going to break in at the verse number 40. And read down to the end of that chapter, the verse number 47. So, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit has come on the day of Pentecost. Peter has stood up and began to preach a most wonderful sermon. The Spirit of God has worked upon the hearts of the men. They have been pricked in their heart. They ask him, what shall we do? And Peter encourages them, exhorts them to repent and be baptized. And then he continues on in verse number 40. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. And they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together, and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men, as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Amen. Oh, sorry, one more verse. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Let's seek the Lord together in prayer this evening. Father in heaven, Lord, we acknowledge our need of that unfilling of the Spirit of God. We thank you, Lord, as we stand, as Peter did, before a congregation, Lord, over 2,000 years later, that the same Holy Ghost is given, the same unction and power from heaven can be experienced. And Lord, I pray that as these words come, as an exhortation, an invitation to the young people this evening, that Lord, that you might take these words and plant it upon their heart, for thy name's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, I had the privilege of growing up into a Christian home. 
Both of my parents knew and loved the Lord Jesus Christ. My mom was brought up in a Presbyterian church in the mainline Presbyterian Church of Ireland where my grandfather was an elder. My father was brought up in the mainline Church of Ireland Church, but he also attended throughout his childhood the Brethren Assemblies and the various gospel missions that they would have held on Sunday schools. Whenever they got married, they decided to join themselves to the Free Presbyterian Church in Macrofelt, and I was raised in that congregation. There was times throughout my childhood when there was moments of conviction. There was moments when I felt guilt over my sin. There was even perhaps at times repentance that was shown, although it was not repentance unto life, because there was not a true saving faith. And as whenever I went up into high school, I was in public school, I remember as I was transitioning from what we would consider primary or elementary school into secondary or into high school, I made a very clear and conscious decision that I was not going to acknowledge anything to do with the Christian upbringing I had. I wanted to keep a lid on it. I did not want anybody to know about it. Um, it was perhaps an embarrassment. It was perhaps not wanting to be mocked or bullied in school. Whatever it was, I would not profess the name of Christ. I would turn my back on it completely. And I did that for the next following few years. And as I progressed, sin progressed. As I progressed in sin, my disinterest in church came more and more. And it got to the point where I just did not want to have anything to do with the church anymore. But I'm, I thank God for my mother. I thank God for my father. I thank God that my father was stronger than what I was physically. And I didn't really have a choice in whether I wanted to go to church or not. I remember one evening, I, I raised a bit of a, a row in my home. I said, I'm not going to church tonight. And this was me, you know, beginning to stand up to my parents and so on. And I says, I am not going to church tonight. And uh, I ran away across the yard to where our garage was. I was dressed for church. And I ran away and I shouted at my mum and dad, I am not coming to my church. And of course, my mother, being a woman, would be a little bit more emotional in those instances, and she began to cry. My father never got emotional. He's, I've never seen him emotional in his entire life. He just simply walked over to me, and I was 15 at that time. He just picked me up like a little baby boy, <laughs> and he carried me over to the car at the age of 15 and put me in the car, and, well, I was greatly humbled after that experience. And uh, even to this day, I don't ever try to take my father on in any physical activity, even though he's in his 60s now, because he just has that old man strength about him. Uh, but I was thankful for that, that they made me go to church, and they made me sit under the Word of God. And I sat under one of the, the best gospel preachers in Northern Ireland at that time, the Reverend William McRae. But many Sunday evenings, I sat in the back of the church. I, I wrote in notepads and I used to be interested in soccer and I would write out different football teams and so on. And we just had no interest in the things of God. And our, my heart was far away from the Lord. And it wasn't until uh, one evening when I went to a youth rally in a nearby church, Randallstown, that the Lord began to work on my heart. And it was a very popular youth rally at that time. There was about 600 young people who were crammed into the church. It was a church that was probably only half the size of what we have here and it was probably breaking every fire code and insurance code but nonetheless about 600 of us crammed into that uh, church and I was actually put into a back room a little bit like this and I had to watch the service through a screen because there was that many people or young people in the meeting and I did what I usually did I got into that meeting and I switched off I didn't listen to a word 
that the preacher who was Clarence Sexton that night from uh, Temple Baptist Church in Knoxville, Tennessee, United States, I, I didn't listen to a word he had to say until it came to the appeal. And as he began to make the appeal, the Spirit of God came upon me in the midst of that appeal. The Spirit of God took the words that I, I don't know if he had quoted them. I, I don't know if it was coming from memory from my childhood. But he took the words of Exodus 32 and 27. Who is in the Lord's sight? Let him come on to me. And there was this challenge. Whose side, Andrew? Whose side are you on? Are you on the Lord's side? And the Lord broke me that night. And there was true repentance unto life. There was a true saving faith expressed in Christ. And from that night, my heart was changed. And for me, in my experience of salvation, it was very sudden. The Lord changed me. And I was born again. And although sometimes it's good that we ask and we look for the experience of the new birth, it is of the utmost importance that we actually look for the evidence of the new birth. And so the evidence of the new birth in my heart that night, the evidence that I was born again, was quite immediate. My language immediately changed. My hopes and desires for life immediately changed. I began to evangelize and witness in my high school, and which was kind of a shock you know, to your peers when you are in the crowd doing the things that the crowd do on Friday, and on Monday you're completely different. And that maybe came across... I don't know, it maybe came across as a bit hard for them to understand. Whenever I began to say I got saved, they weren't familiar with that language, or I would say I was born again, they wouldn't understand. They thought at the initial part that it was just hypocrisy, that I would be doing all there, the things that they were doing on Friday, and then suddenly rebuking them for it on the Monday and the Tuesday. And so I began then to want to get involved in my local congregation. And that started out with simple things, staying behind after the prayer meeting, putting away the chairs, started with putting away the hymn books, cleaning, helping, whatever way I could. I got involved in my youth fellowship and began to lead the meetings in my youth fellowship. And as that happened, the desire for ministry came. And after going and seeking counsel, I was probably about, I think around 17 when I went to uh, the assistant minister at that time, eager, ready to go into Bible college, and he basically just said, no, you're too young. You, you need a few more years here to settle through things. And I was so thankful for that advice that he gave. And so I went and I got qualifications. I got a job to fall back on. And at 22 then, I went into the Bible college. Over the three years that I was in Bible college, I got invited to go to the Prince George congregation. And I went every summer and preached there and did evangelism. And then the last two years of college, I said I wasn't going to go back there because I wanted a clean break. I wanted to see where the Lord wanted to lead me. I didn't want people having me pigeonholed for one particular congregation before I even got out of college. But over that two years, the Lord burdened my heart greatly for that place. And it, it got to the point where there were sleepless nights of just wanting to be there, wanting to see a work done. And... From the very outs, or from the very beginning of going into Bible college, that's what I had a burden to do. I wanted to go to a small work. I wanted to go to a small church, and I wanted to evangelize and pioneer. And in many ways, I, I probably didn't see myself as a pastor, even though I got ordained and so on as a minister. I didn't really see myself as a minister or as a pastor. I saw myself more as an evangelist going to different places. And 
But the Lord had different plans and we went to Prince George and oh, there's been many struggles, many difficulties. And uh, my hairline, just like the Niagara Falls, keeps receding every single year. And I can't express to you tonight, if you're a young man thinking about getting into ministry, make sure that you can do nothing else with your life. And you'll hear that from me, and I know you won't understand. Because of what it was said to me, I didn't understand. But you know what, as I look back over all the struggles and the difficulties of this past four and a half years, we can say that the Lord is blessed abundantly. And we're so thankful. And I believe it's not down to me, any particular gift or ability. It's simply down to the fact that I went to where the Lord wanted me to go. And I always say to people, and I tell this to Prince George people too, there's nothing really nice about Prince George, all right? Once you drive into Prince George, right, you'll get the smell, okay? And it stinks. It absolutely stinks. You get the pulp mills and everything else. And people, you know, they come and uh, they say, well, what, what, what is there to do in Prince George? And it's like, well, you can, once you're in Prince George, you can drive four hours east to Jasper. There's stuff to do four hours east, or you could drive, you know, four hours south. But there's only really work to do in Prince George. That's all there is. And yet, even with all that, that's the place where the Lord wants me to be. And that's the place where the Lord had called me. And I pray that the Lord would continue to keep us there. We bought our home there. And uh, we have our two children now there. And our son is fully Canadianized. And he is a Western Canadian through and through. Um, he wears his cowboy hat to church. He has his cowboy boots on throughout the week. And uh, he loves that. And he wants to become a rancher and a trucker. <laughs> so through and through I support that That's uh, they're the backbone of this country so yes but last evening we considered together the subject of the structure of the church and we did this because if you are to get involved in a church then you must be able to actually define what you're getting involved in now tonight I want to take another step forward in this series of messages and consider with you the subject of the saints' involvement in the church. To put it more practically, your involvement in the church. You now know what you are to be involved in. You are to be involved in a church. A church that has purity of doctrine. A church that has proper governance. And a church that has biblical worship. But how are we to go about now getting involved in the church? Before I get to my first point, let me just say a couple of things. That if you are to be involved in a local congregation, you must first of all be born again. You must be born again. The Church of Jesus Christ is not a volunteer center. It is not a community association. The church is a spiritual organism, and it is made up of those who have been brought into the kingdom of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. That they have been made new creatures in Christ Jesus and they have been united to him by faith and even though the church today is stretched for manpower and even in the free Presbyterian church we are stretched for manpower yet we must never remove this requirement otherwise it is the death rattle in our churches and denomination you cannot perform a spiritual work within a spiritual church and community except you have been born again this spiritual work cannot be done with unspiritual people. And so I pause to challenge you here this evening. Have you been born again? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? 
Can you say not just there has been the experience of the new birth, but that there is the evidence of the new birth in your life? That you can testify of a heart that's been changed, of a heart now that is filled with love for Christ and devotion for Him, and that you're wanting to serve in the church because of Him and for Him. But also as well, that if you are to serve in a local congregation, you must be willing to serve. You must be willing to serve. There are people who profess to be born again, and yet all they ever seem to do is warm the pews. They come perhaps faithfully to the services, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, but they never really get engaged in actually the practical workings or the service of the church. And that's not the way that a Christian ought to operate. As one man once put it, he said that often within churches, 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. And that's quite common across many congregations. It's left up to the few to do much within the congregation. And yet everyone who is truly in Christ is expected and ought to serve. But it is service that you are getting involved in. It's not that others would then simply serve you, but you are serving with a sacrificial heart within the congregation. Now let me also give you some background as to why this message this evening is a burden upon my heart. There have been those over this past two and a half years that have come in to our own congregation in Prince George, and they want to get involved immediately. That sounds great. Somebody coming in saying, I want to be involved in your church. But the problem is that often people put the cart before the horse. And the first thing that you and I are going to consider this evening as it pertains to your involvement in the church, is that you are getting involved in the church to be sanctified. There's a spiritual process that ought to take place first in your heart and in your life before there can actually be any involvement in the service of the church. It begins with sanctification. But there are those who come in and they want to immediately be involved. They want to immediately get involved in the children's work, in the Sunday school. They want to get involved in the youth work. And whenever I say to them, that's great. Here is our list of expectations for our volunteers. And they begin to read through the list of expectations that the session of our church have made. That they must be, and I'm not saying this should be for every church. You do what your oversight tell you to do. But for us, they must be in attendance of a minimum of six months. They must attend at least two services of the church a week. They must be able to say that they have a good testimony in the church and in the community. And they must be approved by the elders. And all this must be done in a minimum of six months. And when you see their face when they receive that, it's like a shock to them. That they're actually asked to, to meet a certain standard before they would get involved. But I believe there's an attitude that is prevailed among the church today. And that is that the church of Jesus Christ has merely been reduced down to simply an organization. A societal organization. A social organization. That people use in order to get involved in various charitable activities. The spiritual nature of the church especially relating to our sanctification and our growth and godliness, that has been forgotten and left to the side. You can go on to church websites today, and immediately you can see how to sign up to be a volunteer. 
You see signs that are right around Prince George. Sign up to volunteer for our vacation Bible school. And to me, like, maybe it's a part of a cultural thing coming from Northern Ireland where everybody knows everybody and they've been in the church so long and Canada's more of a transient population and so on. But I just find it staggering that anybody could just come in and volunteer and immediately be in the activities and the ministries of your church without any oversight, without any expectation, without any looking into their life and so on. A lady rang me up recently, a couple of weeks ago, and she signed her, uh, her child up for our vacation Bible school and then immediately volunteered herself and her husband to help in our VBS. That lady has never been in our church. I don't even know who she is. <laughs> and I was like, well, we have these expectations. I'll send them to you, knowing that she would never meet the expectations. But how bizarre that people would just reduce the church down to a mere organization like the Samaritans, like the Salvation Army, that you just get involved in and immediately serve. It's not meant to be that way. If you and I are to be involved in the church, our involvement in the church begins with our sanctification. With our sanctification. And so tonight I point you in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, if you notice with me there, as Peter is preaching the gospel, he's preaching the person and the work of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. He calls the people that are there to repentance and faith in Christ. And he now begins a pattern of discipleship or sanctification within their lives. And I want to take you this evening step by step through the first steps of your sanctification. Through the first steps of discipleship that there ought to be within the church that you are involved in. You ought to be willing to take these steps. You ought to be willing to take them seriously before ever considering actually being involved in something public of your congregation. Now, again, churches will do things slightly differently and so on. I'm not saying what I will tell you tonight is an exact blueprint of what your congregation ought to do. There's always to be a communication between you and your oversight and so on. But nonetheless, as you come to get involved in the church and to be discipled by the church and sanctified, the first step, is that you would be baptized. That you would be baptized. If you're a professing Christian, that you would seek baptism. Then they, then they in verse 41, that gladly received his word, were baptized. And the same day they were added on to them about 3,000 souls. And so this was really the first step at that time in the believer's sanctification. They obeyed the instruction and were baptized. Now notice here, as it was commanded for them to do. What was the purpose of that? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ has commanded his disciples to baptize believers. The Lord Jesus Christ himself gave example that he was baptized of John the Baptist. And so baptism is something that as Christians we ought to seek and we ought to do. It is a public confession of our faith. If you look at Acts chapter 8, concerning the... Ethiopian eunuch. In verse 37, summarize verse 36, he says, What doth hinder me to be baptized? He has heard the word. He has believed in Jesus Christ. He believes that Christ is the Messiah. 
And Philip answers him and says, If you believe with all your heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And he went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And so here is this Ethiopian eunuch. And as a public expression and demonstration of his faith, he followed through in the practice of discipleship or of baptism. Sorry. And so baptism is given to us as Christians as a means of the public confession of our faith, of professing that we believe that we have died in our sin, we have died to our sin, and that through the power of Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit, we have been resurrected into the newness of life. And so we do it because it's a command, we do it because it allows us to confess our faith. Now there is to be a balance that is struck with this. Tonight I'm not telling you that you must be baptized as an individual but I simply am inviting you this evening to consider it and to think about it. Now I believe the Bible commands us to be baptized but I do not believe that somehow that the oversight of the church should pressure people into it or that they should coerce people into it because then you have people that feel pressured younger people that feel pressured, peer pressure and so on and they end up doing it if they're not actually professing believers. So, I invite you tonight, with a strong emphasis, to consider baptism, to consider going to your church at the age that they have set, normally 16 plus, and look and seek after baptism. Now let me give you some cautions surrounding baptism. First of all, only ordained ministers can baptize. Only ordained ministers can baptize. And I would exhort you that if you have been attending a local church, a local congregation, then it is that minister who ought to perform your baptism. Now why do I say that? Well, you will have at different times men that will come in to your community, into your area. And they will come in and they will hold certain, what they would term evangelistic services, normally more charismatic services, and people who will go to that meeting can get caught up in the emotion and immediately in that instance, the man will take them and baptize them. And it seems more authentic. It seems more, this is what the Ethiopian eunuch did. He professed faith and was baptized. And yet all those men are doing is simply baptizing you to make you another tick on their list that they can then say, I have baptized so many people. They're not doing it out of a true care for your soul. They're doing it for their own ministry and for their own help. And I remember in Prince George a few years ago, during all that was going on in the lockdowns, there was a charismatic figure come in to Prince George, and he, he didn't really preach the gospel at all. There was no clarity in his message. And he held a big baptismal service, and people were getting baptized in the river and everything else. Many of those people never even went to church again. They never even came back to it. And it became an embarrassment to the church, to the professing church, and a laughing matter of the world. It is to be an ordained minister who baptizes you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are to be baptized. And oftentimes, whenever these men come in and they're baptizing people, it leaves a mess behind it. And you have to ring up the organization and find out, well, how were they baptized? Were you ordained? Were you 
baptizing them in the name of the Trinity and so on. And it leaves a mess in the church. And so things are to be done decently and in order. And I'd encourage you that you should go and speak to the elders, to your minister especially, and seek after baptism. But also as well, don't be discouraged if you're told to wait. Don't be discouraged if you're told to wait. You can go full of exuberance. I realize I need to be baptized. I love the Lord Jesus Christ. And you go to speak to your minister. And it, it feels, although it's never his intention, it feels as if he's just dumped a bucket of cold water over you when he says, I would like you to hold on for six months. Just, just wait for six months. And you can perhaps feel discouraged. But yet there is a man that is truly looking after your heart. There is a man that's not just looking you to be another number that he can say, I've baptized so many. And he can go back to his elders and say, look how well the church is going because I've baptized X amount of people this month and so on. No, there's a man that's actually looking after your soul. And whenever you're younger, it may be that you will be required, especially to wait to 16, until you're more of an adult. You've reached that age of maturity. And you can comprehend what's taking place. And you're making that serious decision to enter into the waters of baptism. But also let me say with that as well, don't delay. Don't put it off yourself. You can think to yourself, well, if I went to my minister, he may put me off for a while. I'll just wait myself. No, don't delay. Others, your oversight might delay it, but don't you delay I remember going to a baptismal service one evening in our church in Lisburn in Northern Ireland and there was a man that was getting baptized and he was a member of our church for I think he was like 40 years something like that a member of our church 60 years a Christian something like that he was getting baptized that night in the, in the church I couldn't believe it that it took so long for him to enter into the waters of baptism. And perhaps there was an oversight in that regard or, or so on. Or perhaps it was just something that had never been brought to his attention in himself. Or perhaps he wasn't listening when the minister did bring it to his attention. That is normally the case too. But don't delay. This is something that is important. It's something that is important for your sanctification. Our confession teaches that it is a means of grace. It's a means that God uses for your own nourishment and for your own encouragement and for the own, your own strengthening of your soul. Christ uses it to strengthen his people. And so let me invite you this evening to consider baptism if you are truly professing faith in Christ. But then also they continued here in verse number 41. And it says there, And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now, there's more to that than just a number. And what I believe that is speaking about is that these people were actually in recognized membership of that early body of Christians. Now, first of all, we know that somebody obviously counted. One of the apostles was given the arduous task, I believe, of keeping a tally and a count of those who were baptized. And they knew at the end of it, there were about 3,000 souls that had actually been baptized on that day. These 3,000 souls would then form the church. And the apostles would then go at that time from house to house of these converted people. And they would minister to them the word of God. 
And so I believe that this is speaking when it's added on to them. It's speaking that they came in to the visible membership of that early body of believers. Sometimes people make the day of Pentecost out to be some disorganized chaos. You know, everybody was kind of doing their own thing. People were baptizing everybody and then they were going off and starting all these house groups and house churches. And it was just this hippie-style, organic movement that was sweeping across Jerusalem at that time? No. There was structure. There was oversight. There was membership. There was authority being exercised over these early Christians. People did not just organize themselves into their own little house gatherings, into their own little churches. No. Due to the volume of people at that time, it was necessary for them to be divided up in various houses because there was simply nowhere in Jerusalem that would hold a 3,000 person congregation. There was obviously rooms big enough for 120 people in the upper room and so on, but nothing of that stature and size. And so the apostles went from house to house. They had congregated, organized these people into different little churches and so on, and they went and they then began to nourish them and help them in discipleship. But they were a membership. There was leadership over them. There was authority over them. And they were given guidance by the apostles at this time. Now let me turn to you this evening to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. And the verse number 7, it says, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith followed, considering the end of their conversation. Verse 17, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they do it with joy, and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Let me ask you a very direct question this evening. Who are you obeying? Who have you submitted to? Who is watching for your soul? Now you might say, well, I've come into the church, I've professed faith and so on. I know the elders have got my back. You know, I know they're looking out for me. And that's true. There can be just that understanding, especially whenever you're perhaps younger in your teenage years and you're professing faith. The elders, of course, look out for you. Of course they're praying for you. Of course they're, they're desiring that you would grow in faith and so on. And they want to protect you from false doctrine and teaching and so on. But I believe there is to be a mature step into membership. That there would be the unofficial making it official. That these are the men that you will obey and submit to the leadership. But also as well... That, the, that, that you will obey them and, and serve in the church through them and they will watch for your soul. There is to be that official understanding that you enter into the membership of the church. Now some people would despise membership and say, well, I'm not going to be a member of any church because I already am a member of the church. I'm a member of Christ. I'm, I've been saved. I'm united to him. I don't need all this official membership stuff. People who speak in such a manner show their spiritual infancy and not their spiritual maturity. Again, I come back to that question. Who has watched over your soul? 
Who has rule over you? Who are you following? Who are you watching? Who are you entrusting your spiritual care to? And whenever you reach that age of maturity, and again, that's that can be set at different times by the oversight of the church. Again, you might be asked to wait for a time period and so on. But still, as, you, as you're working with your pastor, you're working with your elders and so on, there ought to be that step into the membership of the church. Now, this is a step that is not to be taken lightly. And again, I'm not trying to discourage you from joining membership by saying certain things here, but I don't want you to take it lightly. It is a serious thing to join membership of a church. In many ways, it's like a marriage. Okay? You're, you're marrying into that church for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. And yet many people, when it comes to become members of the church and that grace, and yet whenever a church enters into a period of perhaps spiritual sickness, people begin to leave. Some people are disgruntled. What do they do? They resign their membership and they leave. If they do that, I don't believe they actually understood what membership was in the first place. Membership means that you don't just pack in your bags and up and leave when the difficult time comes. Membership means that you're there for richer, for poor. When there's times the congregation is growing and there's loads of people your age and there's loads of young families that are going through the same experience as you or, or loads of other teenagers that are going through the same life cycle as you and so on. But also other times when perhaps you're on your own and there's nobody your, your age. You know this is the church. This is the, a true church that you're to be a part of and you're not going to follow the crowd. Why? Because you've made this serious commitment into membership of that congregation. Well, I pray that you would not take it lightly, but I also pray that you would become a member of your church and you realize that it is something that God requires of you for your discipleship and for your spiritual growth. Now, whenever you come into membership, it may require sacrifice. It will require sacrifice in many parts. There are distinctives that our denomination hold to. There are things that our denomination set in order to protect the unity of the church, the purity of the church. And there may be times when you would wonder and look at those distinctives. Well, how do I reconcile with that? It requires sacrifice. Sacrifice. And I believe when people have a right understanding of the church, a right understanding of the importance of the church, They'll be willing to put anything aside to come in to the membership of that congregation. There's been those, I think of one family that uh, comes to our church. And the Boyd family, they, they know all this, so I'm not saying anything that can't be said in front of somebody from my congregation. But the Boyd family went through many struggles to become members in our church. Many struggles. And Stephen Boyd will always say that he just had to come to the point where he was willing to sacrifice anything, give anything up that was required of him. He so wanted to join himself to the Free Presbyterian Church. He realized it was required of him to be a membership. He realized that this was a true biblical church. And whatever the requirement was, praise God, I'm going to come and I'm going to submit to it. I pray, young people, don't take it lightly. But also don't think of it as something as loose, that it's just an optional extra or so on. No, 
is something that is vital for your sanctification and your involvement in the church. But then also as well, the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread. Christ gave this command. We see the command in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As Paul reads those words as he instructs the Corinthians church. He reminds them of what the Lord Jesus Christ said. How that... 1 Corinthians 11, the verse number 23, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken of you, for you, this do in remembrance of me. And likewise he took the cup. We are to be at the Lord's table. We are to come to the communion service. And again, I am inviting you this evening, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've been born again, I'm inviting you to consider this evening the need for attending the Lord's Supper, the benefit that that will be to your own discipleship. Again, as our confession teaches upon Scripture, it's a means of grace. It's a means of Christ working in your heart, nourishing you, building you up in the faith, strengthening you. You think upon what He has done. And you're remembering not just his death, but you're remembering his coming again. And you're thinking and you're preparing your heart. And you're confessing your sin. And you're turning away from it. And you're being strengthened by it to live unto righteousness again. To be at the Lord's table. Now again, whenever you come to the Lord's table, there can be certain things that may put you off. You can say, well, I'm too young a Christian to come to the Lord's table. And now in our denomination, we do have standards, standards that I believe are biblical, that we do require broadly across our churches that you would be 16 years and older to come to the Lord's table. And that's a wonderful subject to study in and of itself, why we hold to that position. It's not something that simply the Free Presbyterian Church has invented. It has been the practice of every single Reformed denomination since the time of the Reformation. And it has been the general practice of the church right from the time of the apostles. And so there's a reason why we don't follow the mainstream trend of evangelicalism and just invite little children to come up and partake of the Lord's table as long as they're able to say, Jesus loves me, this I know. We don't also believe or hold to that which is becoming more common. That is what we would call pedo-communion or infant-communion that is being taught by some men who would profess to be reformed and so on, it's never been the practice of the church. It's never been the majority practice at all. We realize that the sacrament speaks to itself and the sacrament lays out its own requirement that the individual must be able to discern. They must be at an age of discerning what is taking place. So you might then say, well, they have to be at an age of discernment. Okay, well, why 16 and why not 15? Why 16? Is there really going to be that much of a difference between those ages? Various arguments again we could give. But essentially there has to be a standard. There has to be a line drawn in the sand to protect us against the false teaching of infant communion and against the erroneous practice of giving communion to those who simply cannot discern what is taking place. And so again, why does our church set it at 16? For your protection. For your sake. Because in the Corinthian church, people died. 
because they took the Lord's Supper and they abused the table, not discerning what the Lord's body broken for them truly was. There were serious consequences to it. But still, I come back to what I originally said. You might say that I'm too young a Christian. You're now 16, 17, 18. And you see all of the older people in the church going and staying behind for communion and so on. Or partaking of that. And you could think to yourself, well, I'm not at that age. But this is a part of your discipleship. This is a part of you growing in the Lord. This is a part of your public profession of faith. That you would come to the Lord's table. Now again, seek direction. Seek direction from your elders. Seek direction from your oversight. Talk with them. Be in communication with them. Pastor, do you think this is something that's that's wise for me to do at this point in my spiritual maturity? But don't think somehow that because you're 16, 17, and 18, and all the older people are going, that it's just for the older people, that you're too young. No, come to the Lord's Supper. You might even think, well, I am too weak a Christian. I'm too weak a Christian. I know my sins. I know my sins and faults of youth. I could never come to the Lord's table. My friend, that is exactly why you ought to be at the Lord's table. Of course, the Lord's table is not for those who, in hypocrisy, are professing one thing and then leading the life of false repentance. Of course not. But it is for those who are weak, that they may be strengthened and nourished in Christ. And so this sacrament is a means of grace and it is a means of growth within your life. And again, I would invite you to seek direction, seek understanding. But when you come to that time of maturity with direction being given and oversight, come to the Lord's Supper and partake of that. But then also as well, we'll step a little quicker through the final part of this Notice, as it continues on in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Doctrine. They were sitting under the preaching of the word of God. And they sat under the apostles' doctrine. They sat under the doctrine of men that they could watch. They sat under the doctrine of men that they could observe. And as you read through the the New Testament, especially the pastoral epistles to Timothy and to Titus, you see this connection. Learn doctrine from men that you know. Learn doctrine from men that you can watch. And I say that, young person, as a caution. Because we live in a day when there is so much access to podcasts and apps and YouTube videos and online ministries. And listen... There is much fruit to be gleaned from that. There is much fruit to be gleaned from going on to sermon audio and downloading sermons from other men and so on. But the primary person that you are to receive doctrinal instruction from ought to be your pastor. Why is that? Number one, in God's providence, he is the man that God has put over you as your pastor. But secondly, You can watch his life. And you can understand what he's talking about. Especially in the practical things. He's given young men instruction for how to love their wives. He's given young wives instruction about how to submit and look after the household and so on. And you can listen to these podcasters and they'll give rule after rule and this after this. And it can become very artificial. But if there's a man in your life and his wife that you can watch. And you can say, 
That's what he means when he says that. When he's talking about diligence and Bible study, that's what he means. Because I, I see studies every week for these sermons. Sit under your pastor's ministry. Come to the meetings of the church and give diligence to the word. And learn to listen. This is something we're not good at today. Because we, we go on and we pick the pastor that we like. And we pick somebody who speaks the way we like, in the format we like, with the or the accent that we like. We can pick the just the perfect one for us. And we forget how to learn to listen to the man that God has put over us. There's people and they complain, well, I will actually come to this tomorrow night. I'm not being fed by my pastor. I'm not getting anything from his ministry. And you know, one of the big things I think we need to learn is how to listen to a sermon. And how to listen to that man. Understand, this is where he's going to come from. His introduction. He's going to announce a subject. He's a free Presbyterian, so he'll probably have three points alliterated. <laughs> this is what I know to watch out for. And you're learning to listen to that man and receiving doctoral instruction from him. Oh, I pray as a young person that you would see the providence of God in your life, in the pastor that he has set over you. And you would listen and learn both hearing and watching that man within your life. But then also, they also attended the prayer meeting, the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers breaking of bread and prayers they attended the prayer meeting our denomination has a personality a personality that makes us different from other reformed churches and one of the key personality traits in our denomination is the emphasis we put upon prayer from our very beginning this denomination was born in prayer. And I was largely born in a prayer meeting in the Ravenhill Hill in Belfast. When Ian Paisley gathered with two other men. And they prayed together for 36 hours. And although the Free Presbyterian Church at that time had already separated. Yet in many ways Ian Paisley's success in his ministry is attributed to that prayer meeting. Because the power of God came down upon them in a mighty manner and in a mighty way. And he obviously was the primary means that God used in the formation of this denomination. And the salvation of many of our earliest members and the formation of those churches. And so our denomination, born in prayer, believes in prayer. And a highlight of our churches is a prayer meeting. But that's not always common in Reformed churches. You go to certain churches and there is no talk of a public prayer meeting. And if there is a public prayer meeting, it's the pastor selecting one or two individuals that can pray. No, the church ought to meet and the church ought to be in prayer. And you as a young person ought to be at the prayer meeting. You ought to be there. Now, I was converted at 15. The first year when I was converted, I didn't attend the prayer meeting. And it wasn't until an older believer in the church after a year came alongside me and said, you're coming to the prayer meeting. <laughs> Essentially, that's what he says. And I'm picking you up at such and such a time and such and such a night and we're going to go. And once I went, the first time I never went, I, that was it. Never missed. I loved the place of prayer with God's people. And if you really want to be involved in a church, 
There is no better place to get involved in the church and get involved in the lives of others in the church than at the prayer meeting and praying with the Lord's people. Oh, young person, you're at a point in your life where you're setting things in motion for success. You're, you're teaching yourself discipline. You're, you're, you're doing things and setting rules for your life that will lead you in a certain path for success and blessing. Let me exhort you tonight to always be at the perimeter. And never miss. And whenever you get married, and you may have children, and it may not be possible to bring those children out. So I encourage you to bring them, but it may not be possible. And get into the routine of husband and wife coming weeks about or so on. And get into the place of prayer. Do not miss it. But very briefly, I will close with this. I know it's late and we're all tired. But as you have become involved in the church, and that first step of involvement is in regards to your sanctification. You've been baptized. You become a member of the congregation. You've been under the apostles' doctrine. You're at the communion service. You're attending the prayer meeting. And again, those things may come at different points and, and timeline under the oversight of your eldership. You don't have to be baptized in order to come to the prayer meeting and so on. But from that, then you can effectively serve in the church. From that, then you are able to effectively serve the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You do it first of all, you serve the church firstly by submission. You do not come to the church and tell the church how you're going to serve. You do not go to your pastor and say, Pastor, I'm ready to serve and this is how I'm going to serve this body. You don't do that. You don't do that in any other workplace or organization, no. You come and you ask, how can I help? How can I help? And again, you can do that when you're younger. I'm hoping I'm not setting this forth as some sort of rigid procedure. If you're 12, 13, 14, you can still come to your pastor, even though you're, you may not be baptized, you're not the Lord's Supper yet. You can still come to him and say, Pastor, how can I help? And it might be clearing up the chairs. It might be putting away the hymn books. It might be taking a, ba a batch of gospel tracts and handing them out. It might be getting involved in, in work days and so on. And it might be as you get older that you're given more and more and more responsibility. But you're coming to the church and you're saying, how can I serve? Not let me tell you how to serve. But you're also serving with sacrifice. Sacrifice. Let me stamp that word upon your mind tonight. As you think about your involvement in church, it's sacrifice. It will require you on putting yourself second. And others first. That's the whole idea of service. You're second. Others are first. It will require you being stretched beyond sometimes your capacity. It will require you becoming tired. It will require you sometimes even just going, Oh man, this is just a lot of work to do. But you are to sacrifice. And again, I'm exhorting you tonight by experience. I'm not telling you to do something that I myself did not do. I remember on Monday evenings, we were in a little trio, a singing group, myself, Reverend Brian McKee, Reverend Stewart, we weren't ministers at the time. 
Monday nights, especially during fall, our harvest season, we'd be out Monday, Tuesday singing around the different churches. Or the Tuesday night in some thing to do with our church. And so you were out Monday night and, and Tuesday. And then Wednesday night would come, children's meeting. And I would finish work at 5.30 and the bus left, I think, at 6.30 to pick up the children. And so you just drive to the church and you went to the Sunday school room and you're changing. I remember for years and years, Andrew Stewart and myself would go, we'd have called into the filling station or the, the gas station, picked up a really bad sandwich and uh, went into the church, quickly ate the sandwich, quickly got changed, out on the bus, brought the children in, did the children's meeting, left the children off, back to the church, tidied up and up again next morning for work. It was tiring. It was tiring. And then you're out again Thursday night for the prayer meeting, Friday night evangelism, Saturday night evangelism. And I can say this, I'm glad that I gave my youth to God. I'm glad that I gave the best of my energy to Him. I've never regretted it. But it requires sacrifice. It requires you having to be diligent in the service of God. It's, it won't be comfortable all the time. It won't be joyous. And you'll start perhaps a work and you'll get involved. It'll be wonderful. And then after a while you'll get into the grind. And it will just be the daily grind of in and out, in and out. I said that to a couple of children that came to Williams Lake with me. They normally come with me on a Sunday night. And the boy children. And I turned around to them and I could sense that they were tired. They drive seven hours on a Sunday. Seven hours of a commute every single Sunday. Two hours from Connell to Prince George. Three hours from Prince George to Williams Lake. Two hours from Williams Lake home to Connell. I could sense they were getting tired. And I turned to them and said, you're in the grind. <laughs> this is the grind, just getting through it and getting on with it and continuing on. And young person, you will feel that in the church. You'll feel the grind. But it's sacrifice. And let me point you in closing, and I hope the brevity of this does not in some way portray that this is unimportant. But as you are submitting and you're sacrificing for the church, you are doing so, modeling yourself after Jesus Christ. When you reach that point, when you are just tired in the work of God, tired in service, tired in serving, you've put away your 1,000th chair, or it's been the 10th year that you've set up for the annual church dinner, or it's been the, I know, 200, 300th door that you've knocked for the church, or it's been the same child that's been a problem year after year in the children's outreach. When you, your back's up against the wall, think about our Savior. There is no one who sacrificed more for the church of Jesus Christ than him. There was no one who was more in submission to his Father's will than him. And how is it that you can keep going in service? How is it that you can keep carrying on in the work of God by simply looking to Christ? And seeing in him the greatest servant of all. And let me tell you, that rallies your soul. It strengthens your heart. And enables you to live for him. I pray, young person, get involved. The title that was suggested for this series of meetings was Spectator or Servant. Don't be a spectator in the church. 
realize that God wants you to be involved and your oversight wants you to be involved. Become a servant in your congregation and give your heart and your life for the church. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth. And remind yourself that no one served greater, no one served more than your Savior. And if he has given his all for you, can you not give your all for him? I'll hand back over to the one that will close. Thank you. Thank you for your patience tonight. I would close by singing number 576. Above thine own ambitions here. Number 576. Father, we adore thee tonight for thy glorious word that was brought forth to us tonight. 
that by the power of Christ and His salvation, we can come together and serve the Lord in that church. I pray, Father, that glory would go forth out of this place and every church represented in this place tonight. That Thy Word, Lord God, would burn in our hearts, that the Holy Spirit would move mightily in this place this evening to spur us on to service. We give Thee glory, Lord God, that though we're unworthy, though none of us is able for this task, though our flesh is weak, though our spirit may be willing, Lord God, nonetheless there is grace. For, Father, where sin abounded, grace abounds much more. Father, have your hand upon us in healing hearts, Lord God, and preparing young men and women for ministry in this church, in this congregation, Lord God, that your word might be exalted above thy name, that people might come in to hear the good news, to be saved in our churches. We give thee thanks, Lord God. These prayers are not in vain. They're not void, Lord God. We pray to a Lord who hears and understands every one of our prayers and is attuned to every need of his churches. For, Lord God, all that we need is already answered in Christ. And Father, given all this, we lift up our hearts in supplication unto the asking that you would move in hearts tonight. That tonight would not be just another night, Lord God, but that some soul tonight might be saved. Some soul tonight might be called to minister in a different way than before, Lord God, in a greater capacity in that church. That some heart might be convicted by the word preached tonight. They would not come back void, but that our Lord Jesus would have all the glory in this meeting tonight. In His name we pray. Amen.